Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marjorie. As Amanda was talking about the different Old Testament and and New Testament prophets who built so beautifully on the text which came before them to declare the word of the Lord to a people who needed to hear it, I had to chuckle at least a little bit to myself. I thought, yeah, except for the prophet we're reading right now. This book should have been different. This story should have been different. It's named after a prophet. We come to it with certain expectations. We think it's going to behave like any other prophetic book. The word of the Lord comes to the holy prophet of Israel. And then the rest of the book should have been about God's message and how the prophet conveyed it and maybe something about how the people who heard it reacted. If it was any other book of prophecy, that would have been the story. But it wasn't any other book of prophecy. It isn't. We don't get a good prophet today. We get Jonah. I want to spend a little bit of time recapping because this is a, this is a short book, but I think we need to remind ourselves just how much plot was packed into these chapters. It starts... Like a normal prophetic book, God brings the word of the Lord to the prophet Jonah, right? He says, here's the message, here's the audience. 
immediately, just as we start to get comfortable, Jonah hijacks the genre of his own book by saying, no, hard no. And he leaves in the full opposite direction. And at this point, the story becomes a full-blown satire at almost every step. This comedy of errors, God sends a storm to try to get Jonah to turn around. But Jonah would literally rather die. So he attempts suicide to avoid doing his job. And he has the pagan sailors throw him into the sea. He sinks all the way to the bottom of the sea. If you were with us for, for chapter 2, he actually sinks all the way to the underworld, to death itself. And so God sends a whale to yank Jonah's sorry behind out from the bottom of the ocean. And Jonah finally relents. He says, fine, fine, I'll do it. But he didn't say I had to like it. He doesn't actually say that, but we can tell that he doesn't like it, because when he comes to Nineveh, he doesn't give an impassioned, beautiful sermon. He doesn't even really give a call to repentance. He doesn't even mention the name of God in his sermon. If you break the sermon down in the original Hebrew, it is five words long. Five-word sermon, possibly the shortest one we get in all of Scripture. In the English, it translates, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Somehow, the Ninevites hear this bare minimum effort, and they know exactly what to do. They pray to the God of Israel, they fast, and they repent, and they completely turn around. Because the book of Jonah, as we've learned week after week, is a story where no one acts like they should no one acts like we expect them to. The pagan sailors, the ones who throw Jonah into the sea, they're actually soft-hearted, repentant sailors. And they pray to Yahweh by the end, despite being pagans at the beginning of the story. The king of Nineveh, the king of the most murderous, brutal, war-driven nation in the world, is actually very sensitive and humble. The king calls his nation to repentance. This warlord calls his nation to pray. No one's acting like we expect them to. And this is most of all true with God's prophet Jonah. Because the prophet of the Lord, seeing all this beautiful repentance around him, wants nothing to do with any of it. And that's what we see in this final chapter, okay? So we're, we're, out, we're current now with Jonah. We're on the final season of Jonah. We see in this final chapter the one person in the whole story who hasn't repented, Jonah. While the Ninevites are down in their hometown holding out hope that God will show mercy, Jonah holds out hope for the opposite, and this strange little play at the end of the book enacts between him and God. Jonah accuses God. Of all things, he accuses him of being gracious and compassionate. He says to the Lord, I knew it. 
I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in love. He throws these insults at the Lord. God hears him out. Again, if you break down the final dialogue between Jonah and God, they actually say, in the original Hebrew, the exact same number of words. Their word count is identical. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, but it's not the one I'm going to preach today. He accuses God of withholding judgment where there should be justice. And because this is a good Jewish dialogue, God answers Jonah with questions. The first question God asks is, is it right for you to be so angry? Jonah doesn't answer this. He sets up a shelter outside Nineveh and hopes for the worst. And then God does this incredibly weird thing at the end of this already incredibly weird book. He throws Jonah a bone. He makes a kikayong plant grow over Jonah's head. We don't know what a kikayong plant is. Your Bible probably says leafy plant. That seems accurate. A plant grows over Jonah's head and it gives him shade while the prophet hate watches Nineveh. And then God makes the plant wither away by sending a worm to eat it. At this point, the reader should be a little confused, like, okay, what's God getting at here? Jonah, never one to be underdramatic, says he's so mad he could die. Again. And God asks one last question. He says to Jonah, if you're so upset about a day-old plant that you didn't grow, aren't I allowed to care about people who I made personally and have watched live in sin and destruction for generations? And the book ends with God giving one last question. If the answer to that, can I care about these people, Jonah, since you're the one giving God permission, if the answer to that for some reason is no, can I at least care about the cows? There's animals in the city too, Jonah. Are you all right with me loving them? And then the book ends. Jonah's one of those books that it doesn't end so much as it just stops. It ends on this open question, Jonah, am I allowed to care? God here, as we see him portrayed, is kind of a frustrated dad, and Jonah is a petulant little child. But this book isn't just a reminder of Jonah. I think this book is written as a reminder to Israel, its readership at the time, and I think it's a reminder to all of us, because what God's saying to, in a nutshell to Jonah is, you don't get to tell me who to love. You don't get to tell me who to love. And if you take nothing else away today, that's what I'd like you to take. You don't get to decide who God loves. So first, I'll put this out there. 
you don't get to decide who God loves. You don't get to decide where God uses you. And I think that's Jonah's first problem, is that he, he thinks he gets to decide. I think wherever we are in our faith journey, we've all been asked to help in places that we'd rather not. I think we've all been given jobs or tasks that we felt were beneath our pay grade, right? I mean, this comes up in our, in our everyday, everyday drudgery, if nowhere else. Um, just taking care of kids, or driving out to get groceries, or doing the dishes, because there's always dishes. Sometimes we get frustrated and we ask God, like, is this really for me? Is this the best use of my time? But I think it gets darker than that. It's not just when we get bored. Because sometimes we're asked to help people who we don't like and who we don't respect and who we don't think are worthy of our time much less our love. And we do everything in our power, like Jonah, to bail. We make excuses. We say it's out of our skill set, or that we don't have time. But if the people we liked were there, we'd probably go. If people who we felt were worth our time, if there were people there who would compliment us in the ways that we wanted to be complimented, we'd probably make time. If there was something more interesting or more worthy of our time, we'd make time, but we so often go the way of Jonah, and we bail on opportunities to be love to others. This is a harsher message that I'm used to delivering. But friends, this book is a reminder that we need to get over ourselves. God doesn't love us because we're more awesome than other people. He loves us because that's who God is. And we're not so cool, right? We're not so holy and we're not so well-educated that we get to keep God to ourselves, that we get to keep love to ourselves. So I want you to think of that. This week, the next time you get pulled out of your way, the next time your to-do list gets jostled and your priorities, your importance, isn't being respected in the way you would like, Ask yourself, are you saying no because you genuinely don't have time? Because you're genuinely outside of your skill set? Or are you saying no because, like Jonah, you're over-considering your own importance? Over-considering your own agenda. Because if so, I have some sad news for you. You don't, and I don't, get to decide where God uses you. And you don't get to decide 
who God loves. Amen? Don't get to decide who God loves. The second point, which I think is probably the most difficult one, is we don't get to decide who God changes. Part of the reason that Jonah doesn't want to be here, and we don't discover this until chapter 4, Jonah doesn't want to be here because he knew God would show mercy. Because he knew that the good thing might actually happen. And Jonah doesn't want to be here because he's a good Jewish boy. He's a good religiously observant prophet of God. He's the protagonist that an Israelite reader would notice many references to Israelite culture. To the point that Jonah is not merely an Israelite prophet. To the point that in this story, Jonah is Israel itself. If we bring up that next slide, I just have a a few points where Jonah's Israelitude is on full display. In the belly of the fish, he says to God, yet I will look again toward your holy temple, this focus on, on Jerusalem as a prophet of God, to return to the place of right worship. In the fifth verse, he says, seaweed was wrapped around my head. You might remember from a couple of weeks ago, I won't assume that you do, but you might remember that the word for seaweed here is actually for a freshwater plant. It would not make sense for this to be in the ocean. The word here is the same word that's used in Exodus to talk about the reed sea, or what we often translate as the red sea, which Israel had to pass in order to meet God's promise. Jonah is not just an Israelite. Jonah is Israel. Further, in the the belly of the fish, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Has God asked Jonah to sacrifice to him? No. No. Not in this whole book. All that God has asked Jonah to do is give the message to Nineveh. But this reference to sacrifices, again, would resonate with the Israelite reader, would resonate with the Jewish audience, and they say, okay, okay, I may not like this guy, but I think I am supposed to identify with this guy. We see it even further in chapter 4. This is a little bit more obscure. Um... I don't have this on the slide, but uh, when Jonah goes outside of the city and he builds a shelter to observe Nineveh, he's building a a Sukkot, he's building a a booth, which was a Jewish festival, Um, still is a Jewish festival, the Festival of Booths, where people remember their time in the wilderness by living in outdoor shelters. So again, Jonah's not just culturally steeped in Israelite images. These images are here to remind us of the ways in which Jonah is Israel, the ways in which he represents the people of God. So just buy that with me for a second, that Jonah's representing Israel, and it's not a flattering picture. It's really not. 
Jonah is God's chosen, like Israel. But like the nation of Israel, he's not very good at the following God thing. He's not very good at his job. He runs away from God. And when he finally does come around to doing what God asks him to do, well, he does the bare minimum and gives a five-word sermon. But when he gives that sermon, what happens? Everyone repents. Everyone repents. It goes great. And it's not because it's a good sermon, because it's really not. Nineveh, this state of brutal warlords, fasts and prays to God. And maddeningly, they seem to get off the hook scot-free. If we're Jonah, and we are, if we're Jonah, we'd be forgiven for thinking this seems a little unfair that after generations of brutal warfaring, they would get off scot-free within a day. I think it's likely that there are people in our own lives who we would rather not see receive a redemption arc, right? People who we would rather see get theirs. People we would rather see judged. People who, if we're honest, in our quietest moments, could go to hell for all we care. I want you to take a minute and I want you to think of them. I want you to try and find that person. I'm gonna start these papers passed out. We're not gonna share these. You're not gonna turn these into me. But I'd like you to write down a name. Who do you not want to see brought to grace? Think of someone who you know who deserves justice. Someone in your life personally whose heart you don't care about. Was it someone who hurt you? Who hurt someone you love? If you have a name written down or not, I'd ask you to, to hold on to it when you get it written down and just realize that God loves them too. If we could decide it, he probably wouldn't. But we don't get to decide. We don't get to decide who God loves. Amen? So what's the good news? Final point here. The good news is that we don't get to decide how God acts. 
and God is already acting. Nineveh's repentance at Jonah's five-word sermon clearly was not by the power of Jonah's words. It's evidence that God has been working in the hearts of these people. The God of Israel has been working in the hearts of the Ninevites, even though the prophet of Israel has not gotten there yet. And we should be expecting this. In the lives of those around us, we should be expecting that God is already working. God used Jonah against Jonah's will. God rescued Nineveh against Jonah's will. And God is working in the hearts of the Ninevites today without Jonah's knowledge, without our knowledge. Again, God, for whatever reason, chose to redeem Nineveh. Jonah is invited to act in that, but it's not because of him, right? He's clearly not key to the whole thing. But for whatever reason, God chose to redeem Nineveh, and God chose to involve Jonah in that redemption. And we're not told the reason, because frankly, that's not our place to ask. We're not told what the next 10 years of Nineveh looked like. We're not told if this redemption thing stuck. We're not given the discipleship plan of Nineveh. We're not told because it's not our business what God is doing in the hearts of others. But we have been invited. We've been invited to take part in making the world a better place, in making the world a holier place, in spreading God's love. We don't know the reason, but who are we? Who are we to tell God that his love should end the moment we're uncomfortable? Who are we to tell God where his love should not go? This book ends in a question, and it's left open because it is up to you, and it is up to me to write the ending. This book is left open because it's up to us to write the ending. Will we go the way of Jonah and dodge God's good work at every turn? And in the end, if we're involved, it will it will only be in the most reluctant of ways. And our relationship with God will not end, but will always sort of be this patient father and petulant child. Will we go the way of Jonah, or will we write our own ending and come around? Will we be willing to see God's redemption in those who we do not like, who we do not love, and who we cannot forgive. It's up to us to write the ending. But know this, friends, as we close the book of Jonah, that God's kingdom is spreading. 
and it's spreading whether we help or whether we drag our feet every inch of the way. It's spreading because we don't get to decide who God loves. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.